We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're really glad to have you join us on this Monday. Is it is it the Mondayest of Mondays, as you've been saying, or does this feel better? The sky looks nice. The trees are... <laughs> Greenish. <laughs> so it's a good Monday. Yeah, I think it's a good Monday. I mean, I had we had such an amazing day yesterday. I'll get to that later. Yep, yep. So I feel like I'm still like riding that high. Awesome. Plus, we have a Monday evening service tonight, so it's like a meal beforehand. So I just get to like eat and hang out with our church family. I, you know, I this feels like a good Monday. You're enjoying it. I am. Okay. I am. Uh, well, we're glad to have you join us today. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Uh, go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. And, uh, yeah, it was a good weekend. Well, you and I, I'm sure, had a better weekend than the Cubs. Did you follow that this weekend? <laughs> I did. Oh, my oh, gosh. Oh, boy. How br- our, uh, our producers, he's looking badly at us. Just how brutal to, like, blow game after game. I'm not even a Cubs fan, and I was feeling bad for Cubs fans. That's what I'm saying. Neither uh, neither of us are from here, and I actually mostly felt bad for people that were, like, Chicago-born and bred. I'm, like, watching my news feed, which is, like, sad meme after sad meme, and I'm like, oh, now I feel bad for them. It wasn't just getting swept by the Cardinals. It was, like, winning, and then all of a sudden, boom, losing, losing again. Well, did you see that? I have a buddy who uh, pastors a church in Hanover Park, and he's from from St. Louis. So the image of the bean with the Cardinals... Uh, the Cardinals logo on it. Did you see that? No. Oh man, I was like, man, I you are intentionally stirring the pot of your congregation yeah. to a degree that feels dangerous. Yeah, although in 2015, as we've talked about on the show, I'm a big Mets fan for being out east. The Mets and the Cubs played in the uh, in the NLCS that year, and the Mets swept them. Yeah, which I like to say, but then the Cubs won the World Series the next year. So right, right. Uh, <laughs> but I got up to preach that day. I think the Mets were up three nothing, so it was like. Felt like the Mets were going to win, and I was dressed like I normally do. I'm like, man, it's hot up here, and I took my shirt Stop. off, and then I just had a Mets jersey and preached the whole message. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a miracle you still have a job. <laughs> uh, that's funny for many other reasons yeah. besides that one. So, uh, if you had a tough weekend as a Cub fan, we're, we'll hopefully we'll give you a little bit of levity and a little bit of a break from that uh, today. But we're glad to have you joining us. Uh, I'm a Wheaton College grad, and so. Uh, the Chicago Tribune and a bunch of other places were running an article with Wheaton College in it and kind of caught my eye. Uh, and so figured uh, this would be a good one to discuss. Wheaton College students, it said, sue the city of Chicago, say rights to free speech, religious liberty were violated by guards booting them from Millennium Park, restricting access. So let me read a little bit of it okay. uh, for you. Wheaton College students uh, were uh, at Millennium Park on September 18th. Uh, they're suing the city because of rules they believe infringe on their ability to exercise their First Amendment rights to free speech and free exercise of religion. 
The four students believe it is their duty to share the word of God with others. That's why they push back when Millennium Park instituted rules they believe undercut the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of speech and free exercise of religion. Uh, an essential part of Christianity is sharing the gospel, said Jeremy Chong, uh, a sophomore at the college. He and is one of four students who filed a lawsuit Wednesday against the city of Chicago. Uh, so basically what the city of Chicago has done is they broke up Millennium Park into 11 quote-unquote rooms or sections, and they've prohibited the making of speeches and passing out of written communications in, 11, in 10 of the 11 sections. Under the rules, people are only authorized to give speeches and hand out information in Wrigley Square in the very northwest corner of the park. And so what these kids have said is uh, they specifically find it problematic because they want to preach where the bean is because that's where everybody is. Right. So they want to do some kind of open air preaching. And they say that they feel like this is their uh, their calling. This is their drive. And so just at first blush, I'm interested in your reaction to this story of these students who want to preach the gospel uh, and feel like they're being constrained by telling them that you can only do it in one very specific section of the park. I think they have a case. I always am just, not always, most of the time I'm a little hesitant every time I see Christians suing blank for any yeah. reason. Just in general, Christians taking people to court. Uh, I always want to, that, that always causes me to give a little pause, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's, I, I think they have a, some interesting points to make. One of the things, though, that uh, Malk of Malcolm Baker fame says that uh, this isn't just about evangelists. This is for politicians, campaigning, political activists, and whoever else wants free speech. So in some ways, you could make the case that these Wheaton students are you know, they're kind of fighting for the rights of everybody, yeah. not just, you know, evangelical Christians. Or, you know, they're fighting in a sort of like across-the-board kind of manner. And that's uh, that's something that I think to some degree is honorable. It's impressive. These guys, every Friday it says they visit the downtown, they take the train, and then they – Take the train home and kind of debrief. It's it's very. Uh, I was not doing this when I was at Wheaton College. Let's put it that way. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's really their passion for hearing, uh, for spreading the word of Jesus and having people come to faith is really impressive. I think you make a really good point or touch on something uh, for those of us who are Christ followers who are like, man, these guys need to be able to share the gospel. I totally agree with you. Uh, the question is, are you going to fight as vigorously when it's a politician you don't like, like you just said? Uh, when it is a Muslim group that wants to share or maybe, uh, you know, whatever else group. I think that's where the rubber meets the road. If we're good with that, then let's fight for these guys. And Malcolm Baker right there, who we're hoping to have on later in the week to talk about this, uh, they point that out, that this just isn't just about Christianity, but it's about uh, the freedom of speech. Well, and it's hard for me to entirely divorce my feeling about the methodology. Like, So there's, on the one hand, uh, my belief that they should have the the right and freedom yep. to do so. On the other hand, as a Christ follower, as a Christian, as a pastor, uh, I do have some concerns about this sort of blind park evangelism. We've yep. talked about this earlier yeah. in previous segments about uh, even some of our own upbringing. Like, here's mm-hmm. a clipboard. Go to the mall. Don't come back till you have 30 converts. Like, mm-hmm. that approach, I think, the older that I get, the more I realize it is a little devoid of, of some of the relational component that I think is really important to these kinds of conversations and can sometimes I think turn people even even more off to Christianity. Yeah. So so that's maybe a whole other kind of angle and perspective, but I that's what that's where it gets weird for me. Do I think they should have the right to? Yeah. Yeah. Do I think it's the best approach to like introduce people to Jesus? No, I do not. Mm-hmm. Have people actually been introduced to the risen Christ through doing so? 
I, I have no doubt. Yep. So like, there's like all these yeah, lots going roads on. Roads and perspectives. I'm like, oh shoot! If someone's come to Jesus because of a like a slick televangelist, doesn't mean I like televangelism. Yeah, that's a good point. But if someone's actually really experienced life change as a result of it, can I totally knock it? But then it's the residual, you know, payout of like how many people have been turned off to it though as a result. I don't know that that gets really tricky for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's, that is a good conversation to have. I wonder. Uh, and there's a whole other side as as a dad with kids. Uh, I don't know if your kids are old enough that you've taken them to the bean yet and kind of walked around there, but it's coming. Right? We, haven't, like, we haven't left the house yet. No, so <laughs> we're just hungered down. But going to the bean, right. I think that, I believe I read the other day is the number one tourist attraction now in Chicago. I believe it. And so uh, I like the idea, quite frankly, of not being bombarded by people trying to get out a message and give me ads. That's a good so, point. So there is. Uh, do I want to be bombarded by messages, whether especially messages that I feel like I need to explain away to my kids? No, I do not. Hmm. Do I believe they should have the right to do it? I, I think that's probably a whole different argument. But you don't want to stop going to the beat. I mean, I, you know, I've had friends in bands since I was 10, so I'm used to having flyers shoved in my face. So like it doesn't <laughs> like it. <laughs> I don't know. It is. You're right. It, it's a whole different component when you talk about like the experience that I want with my family, with my kids. Yep. Um, but it's a lot of that has to be more. That's just more preferential than Absolutely. anything. Absolutely, Absolutely. Not as opposed to the law. We'd love to hear your feedback on this uh, on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or on Twitter at Common Good Talk. And as we said, we're going to hopefully have somebody from Malcolm Baker on later in the week to talk more about the legalities of this that we don't necessarily understand as well. Uh, but we would love to have that conversation. Well, uh, like we said, it was a football weekend, uh, and so I do want to uh, not just talk about something that happened in a football with a football team that I love. Uh, but kind of a life <laughs> lesson from it that I've actually been following closely that I think is fascinating. That's coming up next on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. And uh, this music always feels like... Uh, when like it first house. Yeah, when it first comes on, it always is like, ah! <laughs> wait, wait, what is that That's noise? That's exactly you, what it is. What's the noise you just made? Ah! <laughs> I'm more scared of the noise you made than the music itself. But it's at least that's what's going on in my head when no, this music comes on. That's fair. I understand. I thought that. I would inflict it upon you. <laughs> Thanks so much. We're hoping you're having a good Monday. And uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show and Twitter at uh, Common Good Talk. So uh, I have shared multiple times on this show before, including on Friday when you were not here. I talked about my Giants, and I'm going to talk again about my New York Giants, but for actually a very particular reason. Uh, so yesterday, uh, if you're not a football fan, uh, the New York Giants, they drafted a guy by the name of Daniel Jones with the sixth pick in the draft this year, uh, and they, they benched their, I believe, their future Hall of Fame quarterback, Eli Manning, and now they're kind of this new era, the Daniel Jones era. So he started for the first time on Sunday. Uh, I was very excited to watch the game with my son. At halftime, the Giants, because they stink, are losing 28-10 <laughs> to 10 at Tampa Bay. And Jones comes out in the second half, and they make this spirited comeback. They take a 32-31 lead on him, uh, basically on his running and his passing. Yeah. But then, like the Giants do, uh, the Buccaneers went all the way down the field, had a last-second field goal, short field goal, and the guy missed it. Uh, oh, I wish he could have been in my house. <laughs> like uh, My son and I just chest-bumping and throwing each other around. It was great. Is there footage of this anywhere? that we uh, can I think my wife tried to get to her phone, but she couldn't. Uh, so the Giants won, and now they're throwing all these bouquets at Daniel Jones. It was literally, by some metrics, the best 
uh, rookie debut ever in the history of the NFL. It's pretty uh, remarkable. It was. He was 23 of 36, 336 yards, two touchdown passes, uh, and also two uh, touchdowns running. So he was phenomenal. Why do I bring this up besides just liking to, you know, kind of talk about my own team? <laughs> There's a very specific reason. When the Giants drafted Daniel Jones with the sixth pick in the draft back in April, uh, it was laughed at. There is now footage all all these ESPN stations right. where they were calling this the worst draft pick ever. I remember that. Giants fans were burning jerseys. He got booed when he went to Yankee Stadium mm-hmm. the next week. The guys never played a game because people thought that they reached on him, took him way too Can early. Can you imagine starting out like that? And that's what I want to talk oh. about. Like this intense criticism before you've ever played. Nobody actually knew if he was any good. They just knew the quote-unquote draft pundits were saying he's a late first-rounder early, and the Giants got him at the sixth pick, and people were like, this is crazy. So you're getting booed. You're getting ripped everywhere. You're also like a child, right? Yes. 21, you're 22. You're criticized everywhere, and to the point that you're like, how can this guy ever succeed? Right. Like, he is getting piled on, and now he plays for the first time. Who knows? He might have a Hall of Fame career. He might be terrible. Yeah, But right. yesterday... He was borderline the best quarterback in all the NFL yesterday. And I think there's some – this is why I wanted to bring it up other than just talking about the Giants again, is is this concept of criticism and resiliency. Hmm. Like this guy on some level had to tune out all the criticism in the world, uh, go do his job. Like you said, he's 22, whatever, years old. Uh, and, and he did it in a professional manner that now he's succeeding – and I want to ask you, because obviously we're not getting the criticism. You don't get the criticism that the future starting quarterback of the New York Giants gets. Yeah. Uh, but but we all get criticism, whether you're a pastor, a plumber, whatever, a starting quarterback. And, and I'm just going to lay my cards on the table that I struggle with criticism. Hmm. I struggle bouncing back from it. I struggle with not just crumbling under the weight of it. Really? I struggle with it. Uh, and, and I'm curious from your perspective um, – with whatever level of criticism or praise you've gotten, how do you find the ability to be resilient and keep going? Whether it's as a pastor, a radio host, you've been in bands, you've written yeah. all sorts of stuff. Just curious, uh, when you read a story like that, uh, like this, uh, how do you keep going? That's a really good question. I don't think there's any chance I could have ever found resilience without people in my life. Mm. I That's the one thing I keep coming back to. I think there's certainly... People have different wirings and some people I think in their DNA are just wired to be more resilient than other people or have better tools in their tool belt. I think there's there's family of origin stuff. I think there's personality type. I think there's Enneagram. I think there's I think all that plays into it. And I will say I I definitely feel like I'm better at it now than I was when I started in ministry 15, 16 years ago where, you know, a negative comment about a sermon or about the direction of a ministry uh, would really, really rattle me because you're, you know, like when I was the age of this guy, you wanted to prove yourself. You wanted to show that, you know, the people that hired you didn't make a mistake. All of that's kind of swirling in. So any kind of failure can be pretty catastrophic. Um, but I also think the people that have reminded me a couple of things, this is going to sound cheesy, but it's like, hey, your identity is mm-hmm. not found in how good or bad you are at this job yeah, or how successful you are at your endeavors or how well liked your idea is. In fact, some of the best ideas sometimes at their at their infancy were despised. So th- that has been, uh, to me, invaluable to have people that yeah. aren't just, they're not just making like hallmark platitudes. They're yep. people that actually know me and have seen like behind the curtain a little bit. 
And they're the ones that'll tell me like, hey, I still love you. This is a stupid idea. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the people that are booing you are right for yes. booing you. Like, they'll also let me know, like, you need to pull the plug on this thing like yesterday. So that's how I know I can really trust them because it's not always like, no, 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 but you're a masterpiece. You know? <laughs> you know, like, I, I think I would see right through that. But I think having people that are always like speaking like deep ontological identity, that's way beyond... Like I would have a friend that would often say, like, you are far more than the sum of your accomplishments. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard someone a couple of weeks ago say, you're way more than the best or worst thing you've ever done. And like that's, I, you know, that's super helpful for me. It doesn't mean that I don't still get yeah. super discouraged by criticism and some of that pushback. But uh, you do develop, I think, a, a, a thickness of skin a little bit over the years. Yeah, identity is so important. It's kind of bookended on Friday uh, when you were in here. I talked about Eli Manning. And his press conference, Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of his career, they finally benched him. And literally a reporter asked him, "Is I think, you know, he probably meant to say, like, is this the end of the Eli Eli Manning era? Literally the reporter said, is this the end of Eli Eli Manning? Manning, Right, right. he was like, I'm not dead yet. Yeah, I got a lot of life to live. (laughs) And here at the beginning of this guy's career, people are like, terrible, the worst. And he's like, well, no, I've got to be secure in my identity. That's just and and I think it, that is the important takeaway. It's just so hard. I struggle. I struggle yeah. with this because um, because it does it, it rattles your confidence. Like okay, right. maybe I'm not a good ex. Maybe I'm not good. And you always magnify right. If one or two people are like, oh that that sermon was kind of off. You're like, of oh I'm the worst preacher ever now. Oh, right. oh, oh you know. And someone's like, <laughs> oh you know yeah your radio show. I don't know you guys. Sound, and like, oh I shouldn't be doing this at all. And it, yeah. Yeah. it can become really difficult. Uh, to have the security to kind of just plow through those and, and also learn the lessons you need to learn. From. That's right. I, I think I've shared this a couple of times to a, a neuroscientist that I remember reading saying are when it comes to negative thoughts, our brains are like Velcro. When it comes to positive thoughts, our yeah. brains are like Teflon. Like yeah. they're just we're we're far more inclined to latch on to negativity, which I'm I'm right there with you because a sermon isn't just a sermon. It's like a little bit of you like yes. you've if you're doing it well, you're putting some of yourself and your heart into it. So if someone makes even like a neutral comment about it, it's hard not to take it <laughs> yes. really personal, right? Because it's not just exegeting some passage. You're like, this is Brian Fromm, who's not only poured like working hours into this, but I also love you, my yeah. church, my yeah. community, my. So for that to not resonate or not click, that can that can be really heartbreaking. And I think uh, I my guess is Brian, even just people listening, hearing you say that though, is giving other people encouragement. Yeah, I think people. From a distance, would assume like man, successful church planner. He's got a radio show. He's got a great family. What on earth does he have to be insecure about? Yep. Like hearing you and I say, "Oh yeah, those uh, we we're fighting the Every same Monday. demons." <laughs> right, right. That was the example. Right, Monday yes. is a weird day for pastors, and I think that's uh, I think that's really encouraging. Absolutely. So I think that's one reason we love football and sports in general, or things like that, because they can in them can be embedded some really cool life lessons at times. So. Uh, love to hear your reactions to that story at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, every Monday we talk about what we preached, and uh, <laughs> Ian teased it a little bit, saying it was kind of a really kind of a hallmark important day at his church. So I'm excited to hear that story next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. And as two preachers, I really like that song. <laughs> I always find great inspiration when we go to it. We should. Have you joked about using that as like walk-up music? That would be awesome. 
<laughs> just like if- imagining that you have walk-up music in general. Like you have just like a championship belt <laughs> yes. in a pastor's robe or something. Like this church is weird. I don't know if you ever grew up watching the WWF, but yeah, like, now did. it's the WWF, but like, Oh, that's the Undertaker's music. <laughs> yeah. You get that for each of your pastors, and it's like, that's Ian Simpkins' music. See, that would be, I don't think I could handle that, though, because if they, <laughs> if they played what was known as my music and people got up and left, yes. it would devastate me. I'm like, oh, no, they knew. Going they back knew. to last segment. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, before we jump into what we preached yesterday, uh, just some things here from the station. We have fallen short of the glory of God, but that wasn't the end of the story for music legend Johnny Cash. You can download a free preview of the new book, Johnny Cash, The Redemption of an American Icon. Now at 1160hope.com, keyword cash. You will also have the chance to win Johnny's complete 63-album Columbia Records music, musical library. So walk the line over to 1160hope.com, <laughs> keyword cash. To win. That was good. Walk the line over there. <laughs> I don't get it. That's written by a professional right there. <laughs> did uh, you write it, Brian? I did not at all. <laughs> Although I, if you had told me we were doing something at 1160hope.com, keyword cash, I would have been like, ooh, cash. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's ever listened to the show, they know where your brain goes when <laughs> when you hear cash. Ooh, cash. I will, I will take it. Bag of cash. It's mine. I'm telling nobody. I will tell not a soul. <laughs> we know. <laughs> oh, so anyway, we've, uh, we've talked about if you've been on this show for a while, been listening to the show, I should say, uh, you know that Ian and I are both uh, pastors, and oftentimes on Sunday, most Sundays we preach. Uh, I'm at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, and Ian is at Community Christian Church in Naperville, although you preach at a multiple different campuses at Community. That's right. And uh, so we like to talk and share, what did we preach yesterday? So at my church, uh, we kicked off a, a bit of a long series we're about to do through the Old Testament book of Daniel. Nice. I'm guessing uh, 10 or 12 weeks from now when we're done with it, I'm going to be sitting here going, why did I do that? <laughs> did you say 10 or 12? Do you not know how long it's going to go? Uh, we have it mapped out in my mind. I don't know. Oh, interesting. I know it's somewhere in that range. Got it, it. it is mapped out. Got it. Okay. Uh, and so yesterday was Daniel chapter one. And uh, a lot of history, a lot of setting up who were the Babylonians, who was Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, but then holding up the fact that Daniel and the other guys, the three others, uh, there is a very important verse in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And I talked mm. about the fact that we all resolve. We make resolutions. Like he wasn't right. just going to not follow the Babylonians. He was in this indoctrination program. There's be a lot of pressure. It took that sort of resolve. So I tried really hard not to set up our culture as equal to the Babylonians. Right. I think there's a little bit of a difference there, right? But <laughs> there's there, also some similarities. There are gods <laughs> and streams and idols to our culture that war against us in following Jesus. And so the real takeaway yesterday was, uh, are we going to resolve to do this, hmm. right? Uh, Book of Hebrews says, setting our minds, setting our, our, our eyes to run the race. Hmm. Uh, and so we talked about resolving uh, and then talked about while we're here, even though we're citizens of heaven, we have a calling. First Peter 2 says, as foreigners and exiles live this way mm. and, and try to encourage our people. So I was excited for it. Got the book of Daniel off off the um, off the mat. And uh, here we go with it. So I, I that was quick. That was quick because I want to give you time because you said it was a big day. <laughs> it was a big day. Like for us, every Sunday is a big Sunday, but sometimes they feel like what a normal Sunday feels like. So yeah. It was a normal Sunday for us. Doesn't sound like it was a normal Sunday at Community. So let's celebrate. Go ahead. Yeah, with that. It, really, it really wasn't. So it's week two of our series. This changes everything. And actually, it's kind of a part two from the previous week. And uh, 
kind of our key anchor text is in Mark 1 when Jesus is doing this really peculiar thing and he's calling disciples. He's calling mm. people who are doing something different entirely. And by most metrics, we're just sort of minding their own business, to be honest. It was a day, just like any other day, they, were, they weren't just fishing, they were fishermen. Like yep. their identity was wrapped up in this, this is what I do. And I actually talked a little bit about if they were fishermen, it kind of implied that they didn't cut it like in their Jewish religious education uh, system. Yes, there was, yes. And I kind of walked them through how that worked. And at some point, if they didn't make the cut, they weren't the cream of the crop. They were told, just go home and yeah. pick up your father's trade. And this rabbi, this peculiar teacher is calling these fishermen who, by a lot of metrics, probably thought. Like they'd missed their window. They they missed their chance. Like this is just what I'm going to do until mm-hmm. I die, and my boys will do the same. And I want to I want to read a couple of quotes because these are from thinkers that I think have said it way better than me. But the whole kind of premise was Jesus never invites us to just simply check a box or pray a prayer. Like we've kind of reduced Christianity to just this sort of in or out. We call it this like the bounded set type of Christianity. When what he's calling us to, he says this to Simon and Andrew is come. Follow me, be right. my disciple. When he says, I will make you fishers of men, that word make there literally means to like shape or form or fashion. Mm-hmm. It's not just, hey, learn some things about me. And so here, here are a couple of quotes that uh, for me kind of really, really stood out. John Ortberg said, uh, do you know what never defines the word Christian? The Bible. Literally, it never calls anyone to become wow. a Christian. Even Jesus never uses the word Christian. Jesus never says, here's how to become a Christian. Jesus never described what a Christian is. Jesus himself wasn't even a Christian. He was Jewish. In fact, the word Christian is used only three times in the entire New Testament, and then only because Jesus' followers were becoming too ethnically diverse to be regarded as a sect within Judaism. And I talked about Christianity. The word Christian shows up three times. The word disciple shows up 269 times. Wow. And I thought, is it possible that we've maybe missed some of what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus, not so, not just someone who's you know, kind of quote unquote in. Yeah. And Dallas Willard describes the disciple this way. A disciple or an apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is. As a disciple of Jesus, I'm with him by choice and by grace, learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God. I'm learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. Mm. And I thought, Man, what a what a beautiful kind of picture and definition. And so we talked about what are the nets in our own lives that we're holding on to, that we're white knuckling, the thing that we've sort of said, like, Jesus, can I serve you on the weekends? Yeah. Can I go back to my fishing thing? What does it mean to like get out of the boat? And then this is to me where it kinda all kind of came to head Dallas Willett again. He says, Non discipleship is the elephant in the church. It is not the much discussed moral failures, the financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity between Christians and non Christians. These are only effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. Mm. And so I kind of wrapped up with that, with the baptism invitation. And we, I kind of walked through all these excuses that they might be giving. And we have this whole incredible team in our lobby that has like clothes and hair dryers and all sorts of, and so, I mean, throughout the day, I think we had like six or seven baptisms planned like okay. ahead of time. So people knew this was a baptism Sunday. Yeah, right. We had, and people had, you know, if they had signed up online or something, they knew kind of coming to this day, we had six or seven planned yep. and we ended up baptizing yesterday alone, like 63 people, nuts. people that just got up out of the seat. We're getting messages all day long. Like I had, I hadn't planned on this at all. And, I just felt the Holy Spirit move. In fact, we have another service tonight. If you want to come and experience a baptism service, 630 tonight at the Yellow Box. Yep. But for me, it was like, 
they just kept coming. And the band is instructed, you know, we, we can talk to them in their ears just to keep playing. And we just kept hearing like five more, eight more, 12 more. And we just started like repeating songs and people are like dancing and singing and screaming and hugging and crying. And people, I heard a story of a guy who was like, they started to drive away and he's like, man, I wish I would have done that. And they turned the car around and walked back in the building and we were still going. Cause I mean, it was just this remarkable. It was like that moment where you step back and say, I can't, believe i get to experience yep. this it was yep. just remarkable oh that move of the holy spirit that's yeah. awesome it was amazing that is really cool did you do the baptizing or are there people no there's the people tank? there's people in the tanks i'm the one that kind of like reads the names and we gotcha. get the so I, I still get to be a part of it but uh yeah we have we have people kind of dedicated to the, the baptismals that's a cool day man that kind of reminds you and it's not like you need these highs to keep going but it's nice to have them every yeah, now it was and then it was like, remarkable all right it was my remarkable. tank is full let's just keep going well totally. that's cool uh, that's what we did yesterday. And uh, again, we like to always say, if, if you're not a part of a church out there, if you are a part of a church, keep going to your church. Go plug in. If you're not, uh, we'd love to have you at my church, Four Corners Community Church, or at Ian's Church at Community Christian Church in uh, Naperville. Uh, coming up next, an article out of Missio Alliance about leadership inferiority complex hmm. uh, and how we avoid that. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you join us today. You can find us on Facebook. Continue the conversation there at The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, go ahead and like the page, and it's there that we put up a lot of the articles that we discuss and, and love to hear from you. And uh, one of the weird things, man, is like we start to see like friends of ours start having discussions on the Facebook page. That's cool. I like My it. My discussions, I mean arguments usually. <laughs> Kind of going back and Not forth. usually. It's and, usually uh, pretty civil. Yeah, and so it, it, it does work. So that's at the Facebook page is the Common Good Radio Show. And also, uh, we've just recently got on Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Uh, that's at Common Good Talk. 28 followers. I think maybe 29 by what? now. Maybe, maybe Slow down, Twitter. We are just going to keep going with this. So, uh, well, before we do that, uh, let me read something that's going on here at the station about the Rooted Ministry Conference. Rooted 2019 conference is taking place in Chicago, October the 3rd through 5th at Park Community Churches near North Campus. Visit rootedministry.com for tickets to this conference for anyone involved in the discipleship of teens, whether you're a youth pastor, volunteer, or parent. Here's some of the speakers. Uh, Elise Fitzpatrick, Christopher Ewan, Jen uh, Michael, Watson Jones III, Brian Dye, Jessica Thompson, and many more. So two full days of great preaching, biblical teaching, practical worship, workshops, and sincere worship. Get your tickets today at rootedministry.com and use the password 1160 for a discount. Thank you for that, Brian. You're welcome. Well done. You're welcome. I think you, I'm waiting for to read one of these and be like, and with Ian Simpkin. Oh, Ian Simpkin. <laughs> I think I see we did that once. Didn't we? Like, no, it's a different Ian. Different, different Ian. He's a biochemist or something. <laughs> Brain scientist, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so at Missio Alliance, uh, Dennis Edwards wrote a good article, in, and it's targeted towards pastors, but I think it's much broader than that, uh, entitled Avoiding Leadership Inferiority Conflict uh, Complex, in Avoiding the Leadership Inferiority Complex. It says it was easy to develop a leadership uh, inferiority complex. My peers were frequently touting a book, some conference, or some workshop designed to make me a better leader. Uh, for most of my years in ministry, I couldn't afford to buy or attend most of those, but I also couldn't help sensing a degree of FOMO. What is FOMO? Fear of missing out. 
I feared missing out on some magic bullet that would make my church grow larger. After all, the bottom line of the church leadership industrial complex was about growing bigger churches. Church leadership supplied messaging that was typical of what we generally receive in the USA. Bigger is uh, better. Uh, he says, no one wants to be burned out, burned by megalomaniacs, but autocratic leaders are able to amass and impress large followings. He keeps going on about that. And the point is this, that in churches specifically, uh, when when everything's about bigger is better and books and conferences, it could be really easy to get a leadership inferiority complex. I'm not a good enough leader. If right. I just took other people's leadership styles, I could mask that. My church is inferior uh, do you think this is a problem most of us pastors face? <laughs> I've, I mean, I've talked about this multiple times. Yeah, I yeah. saw an ad the other day, and I don't mean this to sound as snarky as it's about to sound. Ooh, I'm excited. It was a church growth strategy ad that at first I thought was like a muscle gaining supplement ad. <laughs> the language was so similar. It was like... <laughs> Like triple your gains in three weeks. And I was like, cool, that's I'm gonna get bulkier. Oh, this is for churches. Oh my goodness. Like yep. that was a light bulb moment for me. Like, are we just st- stealing that same that's sort of like awesome. as seen on TV language? And I'm not saying these aren't good organizations and good people with good thoughts and good diet. You know, when I was at Poplar, I was constantly yep. reading different leadership blogs and I was attending conferences and I was reading books, and a lot of them had really, really great stuff to say. The best ones though always had an asterisk like hey be faithful to what you have or where yeah. god's placed you or how you're wired here's some things to consider but this isn't a catch-all you yes. know like even you know we love andy stanley he wrote deeper deep and wide and he was talking about his first church plant was like with 1200 other people yeah so i'm like hey man i love the principles that you tackle here yep. A church plant that starts at 1,200 yep. is not a planet most of us will ever live no, at. So no. does it make its principles not true? No. But it, yep. it, it, some of it does sometimes, I think, perpetuate some of this inferiority complex that he's talking about. Because yeah. like, well, I'll never get a church plant with 1,200 yep. people. So why even bother? You know, that's why I think yep. writers like Eugene Peterson are so prolific because it just reminds us of what's really important. There are so many books and conferences and podcasts right now around leadership and around growing your church. Yeah. And uh, it can be overwhelming. It can be, especially as someone who started a church like myself, you're like, well, I want every tool I can get to grow this uh, thing. Of course. Because I might not be able to do it, but let's uh, right. let's find everyone. I was on Facebook the other day, and one of those sponsored ads came on, and it was a guy literally going, uh, use my three steps to start making millions speaking publicly. And I want to be like, I want to be like, what if you're a bad speaker? <laughs> yeah, yeah right, right. Step one, win the lottery. Like, you know, <laughs> I think most people get paid that much money to speak because they can speak. Right. right. Well, and I think he makes a great point here. He says, I learned, however, that bigger churches are not necessarily better churches. Sometimes bigger can mean disproportionate and unhealthy, like someone with a pituitary gland condition. Yes. Which I thought that's a really that's vivid imagery. And so he goes on to then change it to talk about what does a pastor mean? And he talks about pastor as shepherd. Uh, which is so helpful. He says, pastors are men and women who genuinely care for people as a shepherd cares for the sheep. When ministry success is measured mostly in terms of attendance at worship services, the role of pastor morphs into CEO rather than shepherd. Uh, And so uh, you've served at smaller churches, bigger churches. I've done the same. What about this concept of shepherd? What what do you resonate with, and what part of this is difficult to live out for you? Well, the the shepherding piece is difficult for me just in general. Like we align uh, pretty intensely with you know Alan Hirsch's fivefold, where he talks yes. about the a pest taken from Ephesians four, which is apostle, 
prophet, evangelist, shepherd, mm. teacher. So I think uh, shepherd is a component of what this can look like. Yep. But like he goes on, he, he quotes uh, Joseph Stowell. Stowell. Joe, Pre- Joe Stowell. Joe. Oh, it is? Yep. Oh, geez, Louise. Why well, really yep. showed my cards there? Oh, I see now. <laughs> President of Cornerstone University. It, it looks like Stowell. Stowell, if I, yeah. if I had just read the rest of the sentence, I would have known who it was. <laughs> uh, he says, compared to thinking of ourselves with the image of a corporate executive, thinking of ourselves as shepherds might seem old-fashioned and, quite frankly, a little passive and soft. So... It's no wonder that leaders today look to the corporate model, borrowing metaphors and images from the world of business leadership. Leadership books and seminars tend to describe and define leadership by uh, encouraging even those of us in ministry to see ourselves as executives, basing our decisions on how a CEO would lead. It's interesting to note that many pastors and ministry leaders actually seem to think of themselves not as shepherds, but as CEOs, which I think he's spot on. I think that's a that's a very real thing. Yeah. And uh, so he goes on in the article to say, being a shepherd can take innumerable forms, but here I offer three practical insights. Let me read the three really fast. Shepherding is sharing life together. Shepherding is sharing life together. So the CEO is above everybody telling people what to do. The shepherd is getting in there and sharing life together. Mm. Uh, Two, shepherds relinquish power. Shepherds relinquish uh, power. He says, one of my biggest fears over the years was the fear of losing control in the church. Mm. Uh, but he says, North American Christianity suffers ineffectiveness and reputation when leaders refuse to relinquish power for the common good. Ooh. Oh, well, look at that. Nice. And number three, shepherds must not compare this themselves to others. And that's what we've been talking about here. This man, I wish I had that church. Which of those three uh, jump out to you? Oh, they all do because they're all connected. I don't know that you could do one without the other. I think in general, the one that to me is the most powerful is the first one is sharing life together. Cause I think when you're actually doing that, you'll naturally relinquish power and the comparison will become less and less of a temptation. I think, yeah. but I love, he includes this earlier in the article. I think it's a great way to end first Corinthians three. Uh, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul mm. servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So good. I think that's, that's something that you and I, I'm sure, have heard before, but it's a good thing to kind of remind ourselves yeah, absolutely, of. Absolutely, absolutely. So that that is it, Missio Alliance. You can find that article on our Facebook page. Well, coming up next, uh, a fascinating paradigm shift and an innovation being done at World Vision uh, that kind of almost flips the script of everything they've been doing. Uh, so we're going to talk about that new change at World Vision next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us. You can always join us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. And Twitter at Common Good Talk. Before we jump into this next article, this next idea from World Vision, uh, let me tell you about a a conference going on called the Touchstone Conference. The Touchstone Conference presents, I'm sorry, Touchstone Magazine presents the 2019 Touchstone Conference. Fight or Flight, The Benedict and Other Options for Facing the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. October 10th through the 12th in Deerfield. 
Learn more at touchstonemag.com. You'll join speakers like Chicago Bears' Patrick McCaskey, Russell Moore, John uh, Stone Street, uh, Rod Dreher. Dreher? Dreher. Yeah. And many others. Visit touchstonemag.com for tickets at $249 with discounts for married couples and just $19 for students uh, or your children attending with you. That would be the Touchstone Conference. You know what would be fun? What would be fun? If you legally change your name to many others. <laughs> People just many like, others. This guy is teaching at everything. He's at every conference, every seminar. <laughs> so good. It would totally mess with the people writing copy because they'd be like, oh, Ian Simpkin, many others. And, and many, many others? Also, <laughs> and also more? I don't, is that grammatically others. <laughs> that would be really funny. What is your name? Hello, um, I am many, many others. others. <laughs> hey, we thought there'd be a lot of people here. Nope, just many others. Oh, they got us again. Uh, that's sort of the thinking behind the, the musical act, The Bare Naked Ladies. That was their whole, that was their whole approach. Let's let's make it a name that when you see it on marquees and stuff, people will uh, will show up just because of the name. I'm like this, oh gosh, <laughs> I'm here to see all the others. Nope, just many others today. John Piper, John MacArthur, many others. Hi guys, <laughs> how did I get invited to this? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Every now and then we make jokes where we're both like, yeah, but that one, that one got me laughing oh, hard. I'm so glad. I was laughing hard on that I'm one. A words of affirmation guy, I will take all you of that. You will take it. ChristianityToday.com. There's been this article floating around called World Vision Flips the <laughs> Script on Child Sponsorship. Most of us know about how World Vision functions, right? You uh, sponsor children. Uh, a lot of child sponsorship through World Vision, but they're kind of rethinking the paradigm. Why don't you tell us more about that? Yeah, I'm just going to read the first part of this because it's great. It says, a, a Guatemalan child chooses their American sponsor during a World Vision pilot project in September. Almost a 1,000 children in rural Guatemala gained sponsors this month from a megachurch in southern Indiana. But in this case, it was the indigenous children in need who pondered photos with smiling faces and chose one they felt a connection with. And it was the adult donors in the United States who nervously waited, wondering who would pick them. The role reversal, which World Vision is calling chosen, is the first significant change to the Christian humanitarian organization's bread and butter method of engaging Christians with the world's needs and equipping children to live healthier and safer lives. As World Vision explains, it's simply a profound switch to child child sponsorship. It says chosen starts with people here in the U.S. signing up to be chosen and getting their picture taken. That photo is sent to a community where World Vision works to be displayed with pictures of other potential sponsors. The community gathers for a celebration where the kids choose their sponsors. I love that. Soon thereafter, sponsors will receive a picture of the child holding their photo and a note letting them know about the child and what made the child choose them. The goal is to empower children, letting them make the first of many choices during their sponsorship. We are simply expressing what we believe in a new and fresh way, Edgar Sandoval, president of World Vision U.S., told CT, we are working to empower them to be agents of change. I love this so much. I think it's brilliant. Uh, And I'm curious, maybe they answered it in here for you. Uh, but why do you love it so much? I can hear the excitement in your voice. Exactly, what do you love about this? This is exactly the last line. We're working to empower them to be agents of change. I think World Vision does a lot of great stuff. So let me just say that. Yes. I'm for organizations like this. Um, I think obviously you can pick and choose. There's certain, you know, when it comes to like overhead and how people go about it, people have different opinions about how these organizations should be run. That aside, um, it can still sometimes feel like, some of the white savior complex, right? Like, hey, we I chose your photo based on this or that, and I'm here to kind of save the day. Letting them participate in some way in, in the choosing, I think, is 
I don't know. It's it may seem like a small step, but I think philosophically, what it's communicating is empowerment and giving them the choice. I think is is actually. I think it's just going to have huge implications to the organization, but also to the kids that get to do the choosing. I think it's. I think it's remarkable. Uh, Jeannie Stevens, a pastor of Soul City Church here in Chicago on the West Loop neighborhood, in the West Loop neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were one of the pilot uh, churches that worked with this. Right. It was a trial run in February. It said more than 430 children uh, in Kenya chose sponsors from Soul City Church. Uh, so they were one of the pilot organiza- uh, churches. And she was quoted as saying this, our congregation has been transformed by the process of being chosen. Why do you, th- why do you think uh, she's, that's a big word, transform. Yeah. We've been deeply impacted where do you think that deep impact in this comes from the reason that i think the impact is so profound is because we're so often used to being the ones doing the choosing we're used to being in control we're used to being the ones that i mean i think mission we've talked about mission trips and some of the double-edged sword that that can be of like feeling like look at all the good i'm doing in the world but there's something to be said about you know the good feeling we get for philanthropic work the 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 switch that's being flipped here that i think is so important is that it does take some of the control out of our hands. And I think we've talked about this before. Sometimes the, the kiss of death for the Western American church is our obsession with control uh, and being the ones who are like driving the train and we're the ones kind of controlling the narrative. And we're, you know what I mean? Like I think this in a really kind of beautifully subversive way is not just simply communicating, hey, you're all going to get selected anyway. So it doesn't really matter if we choose or they choose. It's It's a philosophical shift that I think communicates all sorts of things that I, I could, I could, I could definitely see that being transformative. They tell another story in here of a church in Indiana called Northside Christian Church in New Albany uh, that were able to watch. Uh, they they witnessed a video of the choosing ceremony uh, in Mexico, where 819 children picked from photos of sponsors from their church. The following Sunday, members of the mega of a mega church near Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, they oh that same church I'm sorry New Albany uh, discovered which Guatemalan child had chosen them via a photo and a handwritten letter. Another 150 people then signed up, bringing the total number of children sponsored this month to 970. Wow, that's got to be cool! Like watching, they, like they got the video of it. Uh, do you think this speaks though? I, I I wouldn't go so far as to say that like the the standard sponsorship model is broken. This is just a new way of thinking about yeah. it. That that is going to add maybe a layer of a, of power and effectiveness to it. Well, we, we posted this a couple of days ago, and uh, my brother actually weighed in, and I, I think he uses the right word. He says, this is both sensitive to the needs of the child to establish some autonomy and central in disarming the white savior narrative or the American savior narrative because they choose you. So this idea of autonomy and disarming, I think, are really important. And it's exactly to your point, not that I necessarily think that the old model is the antonym of those two things. But if there are steps that we can make towards doing better, thinking more holistically, because in a lot of ways, historically organizations like this have been primarily preoccupied with the proclamation of the gospel and meeting yep. physical needs. Those yep. are both massively important. I totally agree with that. What, what this shift is doing though, is also trying to think about what are the like neurobiological implications? What are the mm. social implications? Sure. We're telling them about Jesus, Sure, we're giving them a meal. What they is exactly what they need, or or education, or these are very practical things. But thinking more holistically about, but what is going on in the brain, and not to like veer too far, but even just that one week on Philly that I've talked about, yep. like the always being simply this passive recipient of 
some kind of needs, some time, some type of goods or services or whatever uh, can do something to your psyche. And I think giving them what maybe even seems to us like a small amount of like autonomy or authority or power to do this. I think uh, I just think that's it up for success. I think it's a great move. I think it is too. In 2019 coming up here, it says world vision plans to conduct more than a dozen chosen events in eight countries, Kenya, Malawi, Guatemala, Honduras, Ecuador, Bangladesh, Uganda, and Zambia in partnership with 12 churches, two artist tours, uh, and one conference. You're going to be hearing more about these. Yes, uh, for and sure. And World Vision really being at the front end of this uh, is is really impressive. Well, coming up next, uh, an article out of The Atlantic. We're going to jump into the deep end right here. Alan Jacobs uh, wrote, Evangelical has lost its meaning. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, you can join us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Mm. At Common Good Get Talk. Get it. You're, that's a Twitter account you're going to want to follow. <laughs> Just going to want to follow it. Should I follow it? <laughs> Are you not? <laughs> I think I am. No, I am. I'm kidding. We would love to have you follow us there. And your podcast. Get your podcast wherever it is. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, wow, let's that's... listen to it half speed, double the speed, whatever you want to do. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review, and we are grateful, grateful for those of you uh, who are already doing that. So before we jump into this big article out of the Atlantic, let me tell you about a concert going on through the 222 Foundation. Hmm. So the 222 Foundation provides seminary students training, scholarship, and spiritual nourishment and would like to exp- extend a special invitation to AM 1160 listeners to attend a limited-access fundraising concert with Keith and Kristen Getty on Friday, October the 4th, at the Bridge Church in Barrington, in Ill- Barrington <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> Easy for you to say. I know. Visit 222foundation.org for a link to reserve tickets and use the access code WYLL to reserve your complimentary seats. Now, seating is limited, so remember the access code WYLL to reserve your seat. To see Keith and Kristen Getty with the 222 Foundation today. So, again, that's on Friday, October 4th at the Bridge Church in Barrington. Hope you can be there. So, evangelical has lost its meaning. I almost just said evangelical has lost its mind. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, should, you should write that, true as that well. article. I'll read it. Uh, out of the Atlantic, written by Alan Jacobs, uh, and a lot of him interacting with a book uh, in here, uh, last name of Kid. I'm missing who it was. Thomas. Thomas Kid called uh, Who is an Evangelical? The History of a Movement in Crisis. So, uh, you and I, I think we would both say we, we are pastoring evangelical churches. We went to evangelical colleges. Hmm, and, maybe not. Uh, okay, well, we're going to figure that out here in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, and, and the premise of this article is that over the past couple generations, decades, uh, the term evangelical is really losing its original meaning and taking on baggage that a lot of us probably don't want to be associated with, quite frankly. Uh, and so wondering your take on the article and uh, and then we'll jump off from there. All right, let me just get into it because there's a lot of good stuff in here, and then I'll share some of my thoughts toward the end. Uh, he says, once a month or so, Tommy Kidd and I, so he calls him Tommy. We're going to go with Thomas. I don't know him, so I'm going to probably go with Thomas. Uh, but I'll just <laughs> read around and be like, hey, Tommy. Like, What's up, no. Ted? Like, we're not friends. 
E&E. Once a month or so, Tommy Kidd and I get together for lunch at our favorite taco joint over the carnitas and barbacoa and guacamole. I'm in. I'm so hungry right now. I know. (laughs) We catch up on how our writing projects are going and perhaps gossip a bit about what's happening at Baylor University where we both work. And more often than not, we end up talking about our complicated relationship with American evangelical Christianity because the future of that movement, which is our movement, matters to us and we think matters to America. So just quick pause. I appreciate that sentiment. He's like, I'm not looking to poke holes or to blow something up from a distance. This is like a part of my narrative. It's a part of my story. I, I appreciate that posture a lot. Says Tommy is a Southern Baptist. I'm an Episcopalian in the Anglican tradition, descendants from the Church of England. Very different things, one might think, and in some ways, one would be right. Where Tommy's church has a praise band, mine has organ music. The Mm. central event on Sunday morning at his church is the sermon, while at mine, it's the Eucharist. And yet, both of our traditions are closely connected, if in different ways, to evangelicalism. The Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in America, is generally, if not universally, evangelical. Just look at the uses of the term evangelical on the denomination's website. There aren't very many evangelicals in the Episcopal Church anymore. There aren't many Episcopalians anymore, but most of the founders of modern evangelicalism in the 18th century were priests of the Church of England, and some of the more recent figures who are dearest to today's evangelicals are also Anglican, most famously C.S. Lewis. Mm. And that's one of the most important points to grasp about evangelicalism. It's not a denomination. It's not even a single tradition. It is, rather, a complex and fluid movement dedicated to the renewal of Christianity, largely among Protestants, though its efforts have occasionally reached into Catholicism. Its focus is on preaching the euangelion, the good news, right? A New Testament Greek word meaning good news or good message. The specific contours of that message are often debated. While most scholars of the movement hold to the Bebbington quadrilateral, some think a more complicated picture is given by the Larson Pentagon. Those debates can get rather scholastic, if you didn't already guess I that. Tell. I was like, there's no math in this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have my calculator with me. Uh, so if you need something a little pithier, here's the definition that Kidd offers in his new book. Evangelicals are born-again Protestants who cherish the Bible as the Word of God and who emphasize a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. It would be difficult to do much better in a single sentence. So I'm going to stop right there and say, what do you agree with? What do you disagree with? How do you how do you feel so far in kind of his treatment and assessment of what evangelicalism actually is? Oh, that's right. I think it's what I, what I really appreciate is when he says um, that it's not a denomination, that it's it's got a much bigger tent, a much bigger umbrella than that. And uh, that that can be what makes it slippery sometimes. Yeah. Like, Oh, wait, so are we talking about Baptists? No, not only Baptists. Right. Are we talking about this or that? Can, do we have to agree about this theological topic? No. Uh, and so I appreciate that uh, in there, uh, that it's not a domination, not even a single uh, tradition. It's a complex and fluid movement dedicated to the renewal of Christianity, uh, and that even on some levels, Catholicism finds its way into there. I think that is all helpful. Um I, I do appreciate that, and I do also appreciate the kind of the one-sentence definition there, even though he describes it as pithy. Uh, but I think it starts to get at what that umbrella is under which evangelicalism has traditionally fallen. Well, and pithy's not a bad word, either. No, I mean, it's, a- uh, so one of the things, he, he gets into a bunch of the history here, and he says uh, in the 1980 election of the newly 
confident evangelical movement in its self-understanding as the moral majority supported not its co-religionist Jimmy Carter, but the divorced former Hollywood actor Ronald Reagan. And that inaugurated the affiliation of white American evangelicals with the Republican Party that has lasted to this day. And here's how Kate explains. It says, forming the moral majority freed Falwell from tax regulations against direct political advocacy by churches. Unlike Billy Graham, Falwell did not begin by seeking access to the top levels of power. Instead, he sought to mobilize fundamentalists and evangelicals to change the occupants of political offices. He told Christians that it was sinful not to vote, asking pastors to hold voter registration drives. Falwell told them that they needed to get people, quote, saved, baptized, and registered to vote. The agenda of the Republican evangelical insiders was born. What do you think? I think that's where evangelicalism starts to get messy, right? When yeah. this um, this inextricable tie between evangelicalism in the last, say, 30 years or so uh, and politics uh, and the vast majority of time, the political uh, the, the Republican Party is where it's lost a lot of its distinctiveness. I mean, now we are we are more evangelical. This is why I think people are backing away from the term. Evangelical now in our culture is much more a voting block than it is a theology hmm. or than it is a uh, a belief system. And I think that's what people are really struggling with. Uh, he goes on to say, listen to this phrase. This is this is going to some people are going to amen this and some people are going to turn the radios off. Right. He says, it seems to me that of all the traits that attracted evangelicals to Reagan, perhaps the most important was his sunny and fervent patriotism. Already white American evangelicals had a tendency to associate Christianity closely with the American experiment and to think of their country as a Christian nation or at the very least actuated by Judeo-Christian values. It's this mm. linking together of patriotism and evangelicalism uh, and that that has only morphed and grown uh, through the generations of, of political activism and stuff, I think is why so many people like, I don't even necessarily want to use the term, even though I still want to be known for the principles that evangelicalism was built on. The word has too much damage now. And I think that's where that debate is going on right now. And it's not the first time in history that throughout Christendom words have been damaged Mm -hmm. and people have wanted to distance themselves. And it's it's in a lot of ways why we see certain schisms within American Christianity. I'm not saying all of those are even bad or unnecessary. We have talked about some of the issues, though, like when the cross and the flag hold hands, yep. right? That can be, not can be, that almost always is yep. uh, a very, very dangerous union. And I think it's also what's led to certain rhetoric where you will have people on the right make claims that anyone who votes left couldn't possibly have a faith of any kind, Correct. right? Because yep. they're so deeply embedded, they're so synonymous, uh, which is so problematic. Yep. And I think, you know, our friend Scott Sauls has said a number of times that if you're not upsetting people on both the right and the left, maybe you're not really actually following Jesus. Right. It does warrant, I think, a lot more intelligent debate, though. It's not just a we don't like the term anymore. Let's move on and find a new term. I want to be a part of a conversation that asks, how did we get here in the first place? Yeah, because I think if we don't do that, we're just doomed to repeat. We're going to do it again. to the next term. Totally. Absolutely. So it's a great article at The Atlantic. Uh, some of you will agree so much with it, and some of you are going to disagree fervently with it, and some of you will be in the middle. So we'd love to hear that reaction at the Common Good Radio Show and on Twitter at Common Good Talk. We're going to uh, switch and talk a little bit about marriage. Coming up next, this article from Relevant Magazine, Why Marriage Shouldn't End Your Dating Life. That seems like it could get you in trouble without some context there. <laughs> Coming up next here on the Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. With Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are excited to have you join us. 
uh, on this Monday afternoon. Finally feels like fall. My son looked at me the other day and he was like, I thought fall was supposed to be like 70 degrees. And it was like 85. And I was like, okay, just remember <laughs> that when it's like 30. Right. Remember right. we're having this conversation. But he was, even at the young age, he was like, I, I, I want it to be nice and cool outside. Does that grind his gears? <laughs> he couldn't put words to that. Either. We no. should invite family onto that segment. That'd be fun. Yeah, until we realize we grind their oh, gears. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Never, never mind. Yeah, let's, let's do grind our gears <laughs> with our wives. <laughs> this feels dangerous. It does. Speaking of our wives, that's a segue. Wow, right nice. Uh, Relevant Magazine has kind of a funny headline, Why Marriage Shouldn't End Your Dating Life. <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought it was a funny headline. Anne Swindell writes, dating in person, online, or blind is prized in our culture, and most of us think of dating to be an important part of any meaningful romantic relationship. Whether casual or glamorous, expensive or on a budget, we intuitively know that dating is a central way to get to know someone, win his or her heart, and build a romance. So, she asks... Why wouldn't dating continue to be important after marriage? Hmm. Marriage is meant to be an earthly picture uh, of Christ and the church, a relationship that points to the love and affection between Jesus and his people. But if a husband and wife hardly spend time together, it's difficult for that love and affection to grow. Dating your spouse doesn't have to be expensive or difficult, but to maintain and grow a healthy marriage, consistently dating your partner is important to do. And then we'll go through her list. She's going to go through a list of things. Uh, She's going to say, here are some reasons we all need to continue to date our spouses after we say our vows at the altar. But this as a concept, we've talked about it before. But what do you think when someone says, like this article, you need to continue to date your spouse? Uh, And then what makes it difficult? Why do we need an article like this (laughs) even saying we need to do this? I mean, what makes it difficult for me is probably not necessarily what makes it difficult for you. I got nope. two little ones. Um, I got three big ones. That's you do have three. <laughs> that's true. You know, my family is still in Detroit, so even like the uh, the grandparent yeah. relationship is a little. You know, I have I have some friends. Well, and you even like I have friends who are like, oh, both sets of grandparents are four houses away. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that sounds amazing. I have friends whose grandparents live in the house with them, so they're like on vacations every other week without their kids. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. so you know, and that's. Obviously not unique to us either. Uh, so one piece of it is that, you know, like with my youngest, he had like a lot of uh, like digestive stuff mm-hmm. for a while. So we felt bad even like asking someone to babysit. We're like, this is going to be, this is going to be tough. <laughs> right, right. So even when you do get one, and we've been very, very grateful for uh, a couple of babysitters who have just like really been meaningful to us. But a babysitter and then a meal and then a ticket to something you gotta yep. take out a second mortgage at that exactly. point like it's just you know so i again i realize this isn't new to anybody but sometimes just like the the cost can be can feel prohibitive yep. and honestly like for my wife and i sometimes it's just getting on the calendar yes you know sometimes it just feels like you're treading water and then you like kind of blink and you're like wait do we have a date this week i don't yep. think we because we've you know historically been very good about maintaining a date and you know sometimes it's just like pizza on the couch and watching a show which i think is also still valuable but like i want to be more proactive just honestly like and actually having like proper like nope just me and you out of the house let's let's spend some time together and i need to get better at it i think you brought up a bunch of great reasons why it's hard to make happen money's a big one you and i did that funny story a couple weeks ago about the price of of a date in different states yeah right like what that's crazy so i think money's a big issue and just time like uh uh, finding the time I've got, like I said, I've got three kids, one in high school, uh, one in sixth grade, one in fifth grade. And you know what? Their lives are when, when you mash up all five of our lives, 
It's not a lot of free time in there. Yeah, and it's right. not an excuse. It's just a reality. So right. literally, my wife and I last night were trying to find the time that we're going to have a date this week. Yeah, and right. it's like it's like sometimes it feels <laughs> like you're negotiating a like a like a like some peace treaty to end a you know right, right, that's right. probably bad imagery to discuss my marriage here. It's like agreed, <laughs> but but it's like a negotiation of trying to figure out like oh well, uh, you've got this, I've got this. How do we fit this together? And I'll we see both, you at four in the morning. Yeah. We both desperately want to go on a date, and right. you're like oh man, well, how are we going to fit this all together? So she gives a bunch of good reasons. So there's seven of them, through. and I think they're really good. You hit the first one. Go ahead. All right, time is a valuable gift, which again is cliche, but it's actually it's pretty it's pretty noted. It says making time to date another. Uh, in a season of life that is very busy, as you were just saying, is a powerful gift you can offer your spouse. Time is a precious commodity to any of us. And when we willingly spend that time with one another, we are saying you are worth my time, which I think is just a really, really important sentiment. Absolutely. Second one, we invest in what we value. If you're like me and you're not rolling in money, the components of getting a date with your spouse can seem too costly sometimes. Uh, it can all start to add up. Yet we invest in what we value. We do this all of the time with our food choices, our clothing purchases, and our donations. It doesn't mean you have to spend a lot of money, uh, but we do have to invest in growing our marriages as a couple. And I'd say besides money, time. Time's our greatest yeah, commodity. Right. Number three, when we shortchange our spouses, we shortchange the family. And that's good. Even if the family is just the two of you right now, if you ignore the need that your spouse has for intentional invested time together, you're hurting the family dynamics. The cracks may not start to show for a while, but the foundation of intimacy and friendship will weaken if you're not building into your relationship as husband and wife. Mm. These are good. Yeah. Uh, hopefully people out there are as convicted as I'm feeling right now, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Next one, intentional connection. Date night won't add much to a relationship. If there's no real connection during the time together, while watching a TV show together can be fun, it's also important to create space to talk in order to continue to learn about each other. Uh, this writer says that her husband and her have even purchased books to help jumpstart these conversations and that they keep learning new things about each other in the process. You know, and it's, again, it seems cliche, but they actually make like pretty interesting games where it's like conversation starters. And I think a lot of people listening are like, oh, why, we don't we don't need that. Like, all right. Ask your spouse. Try and actually sit down <laughs> to dinner without the TV on. Yep. Like, see, I think that actually, you know, is a greater need than some of us Absolutely. realize. Uh, keep it simple and consistent. She says, Michael and I have a standing date night every week. And so we always know that Tuesday nights... That, those are our nights. That means that no other meetings, no, un no unnecessary cancellations. But in order to have a consistent date night, we have to keep things simple because sometimes the thought of planning a date night on top of everything else can feel like a burden. I'm terrible at this one because I love planning big, elaborate uh, things, yep, yep. The, like the wow moment. And I actually can sometimes really struggle with the, like, just take the garbage out. Man. Yeah. You know what I mean? And she's interested. She said, so most of them, they just grab coffee or go to their favorite dinner spot. Like, that's good. To Which not my wife would be thrilled with. And yes. I, st I make it more complicated than it needs to be. Yep. Next one. Sometimes go fancy. Okay. I'm listening. The caveat to keeping things simple is that there are times when a fancy night out or an adventurous date is exactly what you both need. New experiences together are fun, and they create opportunities to bond together in a different way. So dress, dress to the nines. I always think that's an interesting uh, phrase. So dress to the nines <laughs> to go see a show together in the city. Take a short train ride to the next town over. Head to your local climbing wall and spend an hour with an instructor learning how to climb. Sign up for a salsa dancing class or a, a country line dancing class. With a little creativity, date nights can be a great chance to see your spouse 
in a new light. Seems like this is the one that you do well. Like this is kind of the one oh, that you go towards. No, I'm not even good at that one. Like I like doing the over the top stuff, but I'm still like this internal tightwad. So that <laughs> it's like this conflict because I want to plan this big thing, but I'm also like, well, oh, that's going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, that's so true. I'm just a terrible date is what I'm hearing. Uh, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. And I played bass in eternal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Noise. Okay. Last but not least. And this is sort of the Nike of the whole thing. Either way, just make it happen. Just do it. Regardless of what you do, actually having a date together is key. She says, if Michael and I only had a date night on the weeks it was convenient, we would never get one. But we're committed to investing in our marriage in this way, and so we make it work, even if it's a shared dessert at home after our daughter goes to sleep or a walk at the park with her in the stroller while we talk, which in my season of life is a lot of it. Yep. It's like, hey, rather than making something, let's just get from our favorite pizza place and like have a glass of wine and watch a dumb sitcom. Yep. And I think sometimes even just... Making the time to actually make that a priority is really, really important. That's fascinating because sometimes, as she said in here, we make the date to be such a huge deal. And sometimes it should be. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes, uh, you know what? Like I just the other day, you know, the kids were all in the home and I just was going to walk the dog. And I said to my wife, I said, hey, do you want to walk the dog with me? And she was like, yeah. And so it turned into a nice walk where we could talk. And my, right. In fact, one of my kids was like, can I come? And we we're both like, no. <laughs> And it's just this moment of like, that wasn't a date where we went out to dinner and we had this great, we walked around the block with the dog, but that was a meaningful connection point for the two of us. Okay. So before we wrap up, you would ask about dress the nines. You want to know where it came from? I do. So it actually descends from an old English saying. They always do. Dressed to the eyes, which because old English was weird, was written as dressed to then ein. And the thinking goes that at some point someone heard then ein and mistook it for the nine or the nines. Fascinating. So it actually comes from bad hearing. <laughs> bad hearing. <laughs> Who knew? That's that's my love language. And uh, the crazy English. <laughs> yes, that's what it comes I'm in. I'm here so. for it. Uh, coming up next, we're going to close out this Monday show the way we close every show with interweb insanity, crazy stories that our producers have found from the internet. That is next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. That music can only mean one thing, and it scares me every time it comes on. <laughs> you seem legitimately scared. It fears. It's interweb insanity. It is crazy stories that have come from the internet and found by our executive producer, Keith Conrad, uh, our other producer, PJ. And uh, did you, by the way, when I did the show on Friday by myself, when you were out and about, yeah. uh, he picked, PJ picked all of them himself. Wow. You did a good job. It was I good. wasn't just out and about, by the way. I was at a conference. I said multiple times, if you listen back, he is in a work uh, engagement. <laughs> I gave you all that you needed. So. Just, I appreciate you not selling like, portraying that. Yeah, he's out gallivanting. Yeah, or... he just didn't want to come in today. Just had nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> just lounging by the beach. Uh, so anyway, well, we read the site unseen. And uh, we laugh with you. We're appalled with you. Ian, why don't you go first? Why don't I go first? Florida. Teen embraces Anchorman nickname after freak boating accident. A freak boating accident left a 14-year-old Manatee County boy with an anchor lodged in his skull. What? What? Oh, God. I don't want to read the rest of this. Oh, that's why they call him Anchorman. I see now. Oh, boy. This took a dark turn. And doctors call his survival story one in a million. I can't believe I had an anchor in my head. I can't. (laughs) i never in a million years thought i would read that sentence and say it to other people like that's pretty crazy caleb bennett said my friends now call me the anchorman so that's kind of cool i'm kind of a big deal around here which is 
an Anchorman quote. Okay, never mind. Caleb and his family loved to fish on the Manatee River, and that's exactly what the teenager was doing when the accident happened. His parents, Kelly and Rick Bennett, were in the Bahamas celebrating their wedding anniversary when they got the call. Mm. Can you even imagine getting that call? Nope. We just heard that there was a boating accident and that an anchor hit him in the head, Rick said. Caleb told the John Hopkins All Children's Hospital he remembered feeling the anchor and thinking he just needed to stay calm. As soon as I got my hands on it, I kind of felt what it was and then realized it was in my head pretty far. I just stayed calm and told my friend, hey, you need to call 911 or I'm going to die. That escalated quickly. Oh. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. And that's a quote it's, from Anchorman. That, from was, Anchorman. that was pretty that's good. good. Holy cow. Next one's also out of Florida. Man arrested for DUI after slow speed chase hasn't had a driver's license since 1991. Oh, boy. A Florida man was arrested after driving away from deputies at slow speed. Late Thursday night, a Pasco County deputy noticed a white van run a red light. The deputy attempted a traffic stop, but the driver of the vehicle refused to pull over. <laughs> deputies said the vehicle continued to drive away at speeds between 15 and 35 <laughs> miles per hour, despite their marked vehicles following with their emergency lights and sirens activated. They said they observed the vehicle strike a basketball hoop. Eventually, uh, the deputies said the vehicle finally stopped after they developed stop sticks, causing three of the four fo- tires to deflate. Uh, the driver, 56-year-old Gordon Ormond, was the sole occupant, and he exited the vehicle. Deputies said he tried to pull away from them as they attempted to place him in the patrol car. My name is Barney, and I'm an alcoholic. Mr. Gumble, this is a Girl Scout meeting. Is it? Or is it that you girls can't admit you have a problem? Oh, gosh. Have you seen the movie Black Sheep? Yes. Do you remember he gets pulled over? I think they're high or something. And the cop's like, do you have any idea how fast you were going? And Chris Farley goes, I don't know, 50, 55 tops. And he goes, seven. <laughs> seven miles an hour. <laughs> oh, and usually when I pull people over, I pull, they pull over to the side of the road. And he looks up, he's like in the middle. <laughs> median. <laughs> okay, I could quote that movie all day That's long. Funny. All right, Canada, police find intoxicated man covered in nachos and cheese. Ah, That could be worse, I guess. Yes. He was hoping for a snack, but it didn't go well. He fell, and now he's inside a jail cell. Just before 11 p.m. Thursday, police in Brandon... Uh oh, Man- Manit- Manitoba. We're going with Manitoba. <laughs> brain fart. I was like, I don't. How do I not know that abbreviation? When officers arrived, they found a quote very intoxicated man who had fallen off his bicycle and spilled his snack of nachos and cheese all over him. A check on his name revealed a warrant for his arrest has been issued by Calgary Police. Son, I think I can safely say. I don't think I get that one. I don't either. I thought we have something with cheese. Or I thought something. for sure there'd be a cheese something drop. Cheese. Okay. Can someone explain that to us. Colorado. Woman puts injured bobcat in car with child. Okay. Oh, gosh, the photo's terrifying. Colorado Parks and Wildlife sent out a warning that no matter how cute you might think it is, you should never pick up a wild animal. Oh, no. According to CPW, a woman in Colorado Springs picked up an injured bobcat seen above, go check out the picture, and loaded it into her car where her child was seated. Holy cow. Notice its large teeth. Imagine the claws uh, within its big paws. The uh, Parks and Wildlife removed the bobcat, which was mortally wounded and was too injured to react to being picked up and placed in the car. CPW added, she was lucky. Uh, They reminded you, if you see an injured animal, call Parks and Wildlife and let them handle it. Is it a long one? It's just going to... 
Was that it? That's it. Did he stop it early? I, I, I ended it. It's going to keep going. Much like that Bobcat's life, they ended it. Oh, gee. Because I think, wow, that was dark. I'm going to start calling you Keith Conrad. All right, we're going to wrap up with Florida. Guests rescued after Disney World monorail stalls. Oh. As many as 100 people were trapped on a stalled monorail late Thursday at Disney World, prompting first responders to use cherry pickers and large trucks to help evacuate those who were stranded. We are safe, but still... On the monorail, Lauren McCarthy said on Twitter, each bucket can only remove two passengers at a time. Currently, there are two trucks. Orange County Fire Rescue's public information officer, Mike something, confirmed that they were assisting Reedy Creek Fire Rescue. Messages to Reedy Creek and Disney were not immediately returned. Jackals heard about 75 to 100 people were trapped. But these people are so close. You, I've ridden this monorail many times. You can see Disney World. You've been saving your money. You're waiting. Oh, what a and you're bummer. sitting there staring at it as you're getting pulled off. I hope they got a pass or something. That'd be so. nice. I hope. It only cost them $150 to get in. Yeah, right. <laughs> what a steal. Well, thanks for joining us on this Monday. Hope you join us tomorrow from 4 to 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.